This is Jennifer Papito with the Restoration Home Podcast, where we talk about the peaceful path to connected families and restored communities. Today, I'm talking to Carol Joy Side. She's on the internet at caroljoyside.com. And you can also listen to her podcast at Homeschool Made Simple. Thanks for joining me today, Carol. It's my pleasure, Jennifer. I'm so excited. I have heard about you for years because I have friends who listen to your homeschool advice. And I, I found you recently because I'm writing this book about how Benedictine's practices, the kind of rules of St. Benedict can help anchor modern families. Mm. And so I was writing this chapter about stability. And the example I was using was Ruth Bell Graham, who I, I don't understand how she did what she did, you know, to raise, I think four or five children with her husband gone most of the time. And, you know, the normal household stuff, the normal things that you would like a husband around to help with. And she it by all accounts did it with so much joy and grace and kept things really calm where a lot of women would have thrown in the towel and kind of upset the whole family dynamic. And I saw that you had a podcast about her. So I thought, Oh, Carol joy, we can talk about homeschooling. We can talk about Ruth bell Graham, and we can talk about this season's topic, which is stability. So for a month, we're talking about the power of stability and I'd love to just hear you share even your thoughts on how Ruth Bell Graham exhibited that, but how you've seen stability impact homeschool families for good. Yeah. So the Benedict, you know, St. Benedict, when he created his rules, I'm sure, you know, um, one of the aspects being stability was that you covenanted to your community until death. And there's, that, it, that couldn't be more diametrically opposed to the world in which we live in, where it's like, yeah, you're my best friend, but, you know, maybe in two weeks, I'll have a new best friend, and I'll have a new small group, and I'll have a different church, and I'll move to a different house, or a different town, or a different, and so this idea of finding your people and staying with them for good or for bad and the growth that that brings um, in our lives when, well, this person hurt my feelings, so I'm just moving on. Uh, No, I have to live with them for the next 75 years. So I guess I can't just walk away because they sit next to me every day at meals and pray next to me every day in our office. And so daily office. And so just this idea of pushing through the hard things and that in the body of Christ, like I said to a friend the other day, if I'm your friend, you're stuck with me forever. Like, and, and this is just such a countercultural concept, but in, in the Christian world, it's, I feel like it's really, really lacking. And right. so just that level of commitment, I guess some lady has written a book who's, I never read the book, but she said, join a community group and you're in it the rest of your life. You never can be out of it. I was like, whoa, but I understood, you know, her premise is that we're committed to each other forever. So how it applies to homeschool, I'm not quite sure what the link is that you're, so explain to me how you're kind of bridging the rule with, with homeschool. Right. Well, for one thing in the Bible, there's not 
every example where people lived in the same town forever. You know, we, our family, we were missionaries in Mexico for a little while. We've had a few moves, but every time there's a move, there is a little bit of intensifying of the household dynamics. You know, my husband and I have more serious discussions, maybe even conflict when there's a move or the, you know, the homeschooling might get shut down or things a little bit more intense or scary for the kids for a little while. And so partly what I want to talk to families about is like weighing out, you know, I'm not saying that you have to stay in the same geographical town or the same church forever, but before you make major life decisions, like, you know, so many people even, even divorce very lightly, you know, or, or move very lightly or leave churches very lightly. And I feel like we do as families need to examine how is this going to impact our children, their own peace and stability, but also their education. Yeah. And you know, something that just came to my mind, Jennifer, as I'm trying to make this link in my mind, um, is that when you homeschool, your family is like a little convent. And so a little monastery, they convent is an old word that didn't mean just for women, but now we say monastery for men. So let's just say a convent or a monastery where you can't get away from each other because you're family. And so all the siblings that are getting on each other's nerves or getting, you know, tired of each other, um, you have to push through those relationships into intimacy and healing and they don't go away. So I never thought of it as like, wow, families are like little monasteries. And um, the rule could be really pertinent to that because like I, as a, I'm a life coach and, and consult with families and I'll say to them, you, you know, because sometimes the children are not getting along, particularly children who've been in school and are not used to being homeschooled. And excuse me, so children who've been homeschooled all along pretty early figure out that my older or younger sibling is my best friend. And whether we fight or, you know, have a little squabble about something once in a while, we have to make up because I don't, I don't get 24 hour play dates except with my siblings and they're my, and, and I tell my families that I work with all day long. I want you to sow into your children's lives. You know, your brother is your best friend and friends come and go, but sisters and brothers are forever. And sowing that loyalty and that mutual respect, like, isn't your brother so strong? Isn't your sister such a great sower? Isn't your, like, breeding this respect and mutual admiration for one another within the home. And of course, for mommy and for daddy, you know, when daddy comes home, it's a high point of the whole day. And again, that mutual admiration of, you know, he's the king of the castle. We get the house ready for the king. The castle's ready when he gets home every night. We cheer when he pulls up. It's the high point. And so again, that loyalty um, that you find in a monastery for the, your leadership and for your brothers or your sisters in Christ, that that is what we're breeding in our family. This is, this is genius, Jennifer. I never thought of it, but I'm so glad that you're exposing me to the, the crossover um, from these two concepts. I love it. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not Catholic, but I do love studying the saints and studying ancient Christianity because I yes. am a Christian. Yes. And so, you know, as I was yeah. thinking about just the chaos in the world today, I mean, a lot of Christians are like, okay, well, God's going to come back anytime. So I don't have to worry about how crazy the world is. 
and I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that Benedict lived through the dark ages. The world was equally chaotic. And yet the Benedictines were able to save a lot of culture and civilization through their work. And so I often compare, I mean, our homes are almost like monasteries where we can curate the rules in our homes. We can curate the, the atmosphere. It's such a beautiful opportunity. And I know for myself, it was easy for me to have that idea towards my children. Like I, we're going to do Bible time. We're going to read books. We're going to work in the garden. We're going to bake together. That part of it was easy, but sometimes my attitude towards the father superior or the abbot of the monastery was a little lacking. (laughs) And I think, you know, I think a lot of my conflict in my marriage was because of me worrying about my kids I write about this a lot in my book, Mothering by the Book. So I worry about my kids. So I cause conflict in my marriage by criticizing my husband or telling him to do things differently. And then my kids suffer as they see us fight. Mm -hmm. Our our conflict caused such a lack of stability and peace for them. It wasn't necessarily about a move. It was about our conflict. What do you say to moms who are like, I'm homeschooling. I have this vision and my husband's not doing all this stuff that I want him to do. And so they're almost creating instability to the conflict, but they feel like it's their husband's fault for not being more godly or whatever. Yes. I would say, you know, um, a pastor we used to know years ago used to say, pray it on them. Don't lay it on them. And so the idea of getting on your knees, there's an old song. You can talk about me all that you please. I'll talk about you down on my knees. And so it's from the Jesus movement, but it's true. So um, you're not your husband's conscience and you're not his um, director. You're his cheerleader. And your job is to make him, to magnify him in your children's eyes. And um, for him to see, you know, when um, George W. was president and um, his wife would look at him, like when he was talking or doing something, she would, I can't even think of her first name, not Barbara, but um, Laura. Laura, thank you. Laura, you know, the, the people that maybe weren't too fond of the Bushes would kind of chide how Laura would look at W. But I love that. I love the way that she would look at him like, you are wonderful. I adore you. And I, I years ago, my granddaughter was kind of had her knickers in a twist because her parents were going on a date and I was babysitting and she was mad. She was just a little girl, but she wanted to know why they were going out without her. And so my son sat her down and said, you know, sweetheart, I just want you to know something. Mommy will always come first before you. And it's because when I love mommy well, I'm really, that's the best way that I can love you well. And so flipping that to what you're asking for your children to say, you know, daddy will always come first. And I think in homeschooling, there is an idolatry that people can make toward their children. And I see this in the nursing community. I see it. There's just a lot of ways I see this. And I, and I speak to it when I'm consulting with families um, because I feel like, uh, and I've heard dad say, particularly in the nursing community, when do I get my wife back? And I'm like, oh, 
you know, no, that is, you know, your child is important, but what's most important for your children is for you and your husband to just be in this just love affair. And that creates a security for your kids instead of making them first and we'll get to him when they're leaving for college and then you're strangers. Right. And this is one of the things I love about Ruth Bell Graham is that her husband was imperfect. Like he was only home here and there. It could have been easy for her to just, just be so like frustrated with him when he was home. And, and I think as homeschool moms, we are so intentional about making the home right, that it can be easy for us to either treat our husband as just an accessory to our yes. parenting yes, or, or be really disrespectful because we're doing all this research and then we don't realize the impact on our kids. Like for my children, what they most wanted was for me to just be happy and happy with their dad. That's right. They didn't need me to do all the homeschool lessons. Perfect. They didn't need, you know, but I was stressing myself out with perfect homeschool stuff and then being a jerk to my husband. That's right. That's right. So putting first things first, as C.S. Lewis said, and second things will follow. So what Ruth Bell Graham did is when Billy would come home, she would completely clear the deck. She would act like a bouncer at a neighborhood saloon. She would not let anyone in. She guarded him. And people who would visit their home would say how she'd say, Okay, honey, why don't you go sit over there in the sun while, you know, Jan, Karen and I chat because she was always, always protective of his energy that he wasn't on when he was at home. She didn't say the discipline for when he got home. She also, so a fun story, one of my favorite stories is um, Ruth and Billy moved to Montreat. Um, Ruth was the child of Chinese inland missionaries. Um, her parents, uh, her, her dad was a, a doctor and, they, and she was raised in China. And after uh, the church was, you know, closed out of China, forced to come to the States, her parents retired eventually and moved to Montreat, which is kind of the Jerusalem of Presbyterianism. And they have a, a college there and a church there and kind of a community and a lot of retired missionaries live there. So her parents moved there and Ruth is very, very close to her parents. And um, because Billy traveled so much, she realized she was going to be raising her children as a single parent. And so she said, well, Billy, you can just travel the world, but I at least need some family support. So I'm, we're going to move if it's okay to Montreat. And he agreed. And so they moved there right near her parents, but the little town is like a little sweet village, a little college town. And when Billy became famous, every Tom, Dick and Harry would come to see where he lived, pick the flowers out of his garden as souvenirs, look in their windows, literally with their noses pressed up against their windows. And Ruth was just like, I'm going to lose my mind. So they talked about, well, let's get some land, you know, up, up in the mountains here. And so Billy's like, yeah, yeah, that'd be good. But he's kind of an absent-minded professor, if you know anything about him. Like Ruth could ask him things and he'll be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he has no idea what she's asking and she could just really get away with stuff. Well, anyway, so he left on a long trip. And while he was gone, Ruth was told about some land up in the mountains there in North Carolina. And so she went up in her old Jeep with her asbestos gloves. She finds the land. She comes back. 
and she buys it. She goes to the bank and she takes out the loan or whatever you have to do. And she buys the land. So Billy comes home and he's, you know, reading the paper or, you know, doing whatever, just spacing out. And she says, honey, I just want you to know I bought, I don't know, 200 acres or something. It was like $5 an acre. You just cannot believe what she paid, you know, for this land. And he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And all of a sudden he goes, what? And she says, hon, I remember that land I told you about? Well, I bought it while you were gone. He goes, you did what? And she said, Billy, I cannot wait for you to be home to make decisions. I would just be paralyzed. So I have to go on with life while you're gone. And she made that her rule. If a child needed a spanking, he got a spanking. She couldn't wait three weeks, you know, for Billy to come back from wherever he was, you know, Mexico or China or wherever. She had to rule the roost when he wasn't home. But when he was home, she also didn't make him the bad guy. She didn't spend the whole time while daddy was gone going, when your father comes home, you're going to wish you were never born. Like she, she modeled esteem for him and she never modeled discontent. And she used to say, I'd rather have a little bit of Billy than a lot of anybody else. I was going to bring up that quote because, you know, I think for a lot of us as women, we're so far away from the, you know, it's like we have the Bible. The Bible says to love your husband, you know, love the Lord, obey the Lord's commandments. But honestly, we're pretty far away from that as Christians. And it's become much more culturally acceptable to just be about making life better for ourselves and hoping everyone else falls in line. But honestly, like as I've grown older, I've seen, here's the deal. This is better for me. Nurturing my husband relationship is better for me because my kids are going to grow up and they're going to leave. And he's this person who still adores me. He's still going to be there loving me and wanting to talk to me, wanting to be with me. Whereas my children are going to like, I hate to break it to the moms listening with young kids. They're going to grow up. They're going to get married. They're going to have your own family, their own families. And you're going to be as much as you can, a blessing to them, but they're not going to be sitting there cuddling with you on the couch forever. But if you're nice to your husband, he will. So there is a lot in it for us. You know, and I, I don't know, this is, you know, an off topic, but I've, I've been listening to some stuff about hormones and they talk about how a woman is a woman without having an intimate relationship with a husband gets really far into her testosterone side, which makes her more prone to stress, more angry. But when she has an intimate relationship with her husband and they're having regular relations, they're having sex. (laughs) It actually makes her happier. It's a release valve for her. It releases serotonin releases, um, connection hormones in him as well. And so there's all these, there are, you know, it's interesting how everything that God asks us to do, we might think of it as burdensome. Like, why do I have to be nice to my husband if he's not nice to me? Or why do I have to put up with um, a dad who's not, you know, reading the Bible every day to his kids or whatever our complaints are. And yet when we follow those biblical commands, our lives do get better. That's for sure. And that's in everything. And as you said, Jennifer, you, you use the phrase, the Bible says, and then you said, and our culture is so far from that. But just because our culture is so far from that, that should be where we're pressing in even harder to the word of God. 
and not letting, as it says in the scripture, letting the world, uh, in the Phillips translation, press us into its fashion mold. So we are being shaped by the word of God, not hopefully by our culture. Like we have a choice who, as, as the old Indian proverb says, when you, when you, um, when you have dogs that are going to fight, which dog wins the one that you feed the best, the one that you feed the most. So are we feeding our spirit or are we feeding our flesh? Are we spending our time on social media, you know, um, coveting other people's lives, other people's possessions, other people's children, whatever it is, or are we face-to-face -face falling in love with God in his word every single day? Ruth was a stitch with this. She was so hungry for God's word that she would even do dishes with her Bible open next to her constantly meditating on the word of God. And she hated to do dishes. She was not a very domestic person. She didn't really like to cook and she didn't really like those wifely things, but she was a scholar. And so she put a little sign above her kitchen sink that said divine service performed here three times a day. <laughs> So, I love that. And on her epitaph on her grave, I think she said construction finished. Thank you for your patience. I, I didn't say that exactly right, but I just right. appreciate that the humility. Right. You know, yes. she really had so much humility. One yes. of the things I think that gets us off track as homeschool moms and causes some of that frustration with the people we want to take care of us. You know, we want our husbands to take care of us. We probably should take better care of ourselves. So we're not in that needy position. And one of the things that inhibits that is overschooling our kids. You know, Whoa. I feel like moms, they get so stressed in the early years, you know, with the peaceful press, we really encourage moms to spend the early years reading out loud, developing imagination, developing the skills of following directions, developing motor skills. And then at the right time, when kids are ready, the rest of it will fall into place quickly. And you will have had a lot more fun in the process. How, what do you say? Can you encourage moms that that is that we're on the right track here as we're simplifying a little bit? Yes. So Dr. Raymond Moore, the founder of the homeschool movement, used to say, you're homeschooling, you're not having school at home. And there's a huge distinction there, Jennifer. So if you're trying to reproduce the classroom up at the corner at the public school or the Christian school or private school, you're missing the whole point. And he used to say to us, if you're going to do that, then send your kids to school. At least they have recess and art class and gym. And he would say to us, if you're just like tying their ankle to your dining room table and doing workbooks all day and all night, you're missing the whole point. So Dr. Moore used to say that homeschool is a three-legged stool. It's study, of course, but it's service and work. Three legs, study, service, work. And so as you teach your children to serve and to work, you're developing their character and their spiritual lives. Um, education never made anyone godly, uh, but it can make people hideous. And so um, making this idol of we're all gonna go to Harvard 
Um, my personal, a little saying that I coined many years ago is who cares if your children go to Harvard if they're not going to heaven? And so putting first things first is so essential that we develop, like you said, their joy of, first of all, reading out loud. We read out loud from conception in the womb. They can hear our voices in the womb till the night before they get married and every day in between. We read aloud to our children. That is the core of our relationship with them. That's how we disciple them, how we mentor them, how we teach them. And um, there was something else you said. No, wait. Oh, I lost my train of thought. You said we read out loud. We talk about what we read, learn to follow directions, lots of motor skills, lots of developing imagination and worldview. There you go. So work is going to give your children life skills. Service is going to give them an altruistic heart, thinking of others before themselves and finding the joy in being a servant. Because as Jesus said in Salty Sang, if you want to be great in the kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. And so focusing on the important things, anybody can learn their multiplication tables and how to read, write, and do arithmetic. Robots can learn those things. But what we're doing is we are equipping our children for eternity. We're raising, uh, as Dr. Moore used to say, we're raising prince and princesses to rule in the heavenly kingdom. Like that's what we're doing. There's so much at stake here. So you can be smart. But as I like to say, the Unabomber was smart. So let's work first and foremost on the discipleship and the mentoring of our kids, which comes through reading out loud and work, work, work. That's where character is born. And all the life skills. Do your sons know how to cook? Do they know how to, you know, take care of animals, babies, the elderly, the sick? It's not just your girls that are teaching these things, both. Yeah. This has been so much fun, Carol. I love everything you've said. It's so encouraging. And I know the moms are really going to be inspired as they listen to your words. I'm excited for them to find more about you. I know you have some seminars on diet and learning. That's so important on distractions. I'm really excited for moms to continue learning from you and they can find you at caroljoyside.com. Amen. Amen.